This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters Talk, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Long. He is a professor of religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, where he has taught since receiving his doctorate uh, from the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, he is the author of A Vision of, for Hinduism. Uh, he is also author of Jainism, An Introduction, and a Historical Dictionary of Hinduism, as well as the forthcoming Indian Philosophy, An Introduction. Uh, he is a contributing editor for the online magazine Sutra Journal. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Uh, Jeffrey, let's uh, begin uh, with your personal story. Um, I, I met, told this story in American Veda, and I'd love our listeners to hear, because you're, uh, as an academic, uh, an unusual person in that you were, um, you were born Catholic and, and were drawn to the uh, traditions of India, the spiritual traditions born in India as a as a, a practitioner before becoming a scholar. Uh, tell us how you came to that, and a uh, little if you back Certainly, certainly. I grew up, as you said, I grew up Catholic, and uh, I was a pretty devout Catholic when I was a child, but I was also pretty unconventional, pretty uh, independent-minded, and my family promoted that. Uh, my family also are uh, a long lineage of very independent-thinking <laughs> people in my past, so I was free to ask questions and explore ideas. And when I was quite young, about uh, 11, my father was in a horrible accident, and uh, it left him very, very badly injured. Uh, my mother took care of him at home uh, after he'd been in the hospital for some months. And, but tragically, he ended up taking his own life uh, as a result of all of this stuff that had happened to him in the accident. So this period of about a year and a half, of uh, my father's ordeal and then finally losing him uh, was really a major turning point in my life. It really made me start thinking even more deeply than I already had about religious issues, about the big questions in life. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What happens after we die? Uh, I became very focused on these things. And uh, I had always been intrigued by uh, science. I like to read a lot about religion and science and um, read uh, Fritjof Kaffer's book, The Tao of Physics. I think I was about 12 or 13 when I read that. Um, then uh, I, I saw the movie Gandhi when it came out, and that had a big influence on me. I was very taken with Gandhi, and uh, also a big fan of the Beatles, as you know. And uh, George Harrison especially was very drawn to India. And I kept finding in, in the music lyrics and in the things I was reading uh, a lot of pointers toward ideas which really made sense to me intuitively. They really resonated with my own uh, kind of independent thought process. And I think the most dramatic moment came when uh, I was sort of on the lookout for the Bhagavad Gita, uh, but it was a hard book to come across in uh, Montgomery City, Missouri, where I grew up. And I just happened to go to a, a flea market at the local Methodist church uh, in their parking lot. And... Um, happened upon a copy of the Gita right there, uh, last place I really expected to find it. And there it was. I picked it up and uh, started reading and finding a philosophy that really resonated with, with what I believe. 
And as I was growing up, as I passed on through my adolescent years, uh, in my own mind, I felt that I had reconciled my beliefs, which were really more Hindu and more Vedantic beliefs, with the teachings of the church uh, in which I was growing up. But then by the time I got to college, I, I was interested in, in being a scholar of religion, actually, from the beginning, too. And I, I was interested in being a theologian, but I found that what I was, was believing was different enough from what the church taught that uh, I, it was really, by the time I graduated college, I didn't feel the church was my spiritual home and uh, felt much more drawn to Hinduism And in my adult life. Uh, that's, what, that's really what's happened. Uh, I ended up meeting and marrying someone who'd grown up Hindu, and I uh, had the opportunity to uh, join the tradition in that way, and uh, since became very involved with the Vedanta Society in the U.S. So that, that's a short version of my story. Sure. I, a question along those lines. Uh, uh, there are many people who have uh, come from Christian uh, backgrounds that have been uh, drawn to Hinduism and um, Vedantic philosophy. But what, what, if one becomes a Hindu, a question I have, uh, does one is it an actual formal procedure like one becomes a Christian or one converts to Judaism or Islam? <clears throat> there are formal procedures. Is is it like that with Hinduism, or is it more that this is a belief system? This is a explanation of reality uh, with with uh, technologies for for growing one's spiritual self that one can embrace uh, and not necessarily have to make any uh, formal. Uh, uh, go through any formal procedures to be a Hindu. Right. I think I think it's both, actually, which maybe is a very typical Hindu way to answer a question like that. Uh, in, in one sense, it's very much like what you're saying. Um, when I had this opportunity to formally affiliate with the tradition, um, I was in India at the time, and, uh, you know, just about everyone I knew there was Hindu, and everyone said, well, you don't really have to do that, you know, because... You know, it's it's a way of life, it's a way of thinking. As you were saying, it's a philosophy, mm-hmm. it's a, a series of uh, practices and, and uh, spiritual processes that enable one's growth, and anyone can really participate in that. And when you think of it, you know, from, I mean, this, even this word Hindu is a little contentious because many people will tell you, well, it's not Hindu, it's Sanatana Dharma, it's a universal way. And so... Uh, I think from a spiritual perspective, it's really not necessary to um, formally do anything. And also, there's no central institution of Hinduism like there is uh, of the Catholic Church, where, you know, you you don't get a a membership card or anything like that. But uh, there are uh, rituals, there are traditions that are very old in Hinduism that enable one to become initiated into a a specific tradition, uh, because, of course, there are many, many... Hindu traditions, and uh, there's also um, a process by which one can can become formally affiliated. I did this through uh, an organization called the Arya Samaj. Uh, now, I'm not really uh, closely tied to the Arya Samaj, but we wanted to get married in an Arya Samaj temple. Uh, that's actually a very popular thing to do in India, and so uh, that it uh, really uh, uh, they have a, a very nice ceremony, uh, their temples are very beautiful, so we weren't really thinking on a very profound spiritual level when we did that. We wanted to get married in that temple, mm-hmm. but it was a requirement uh, there that, uh, that both members of the couple be Hindu, and so my wife, or soon-to-be wife at that point, and her father uh, said, well, but, you know, we don't believe that's necessary, and so on, and then I said, well, 
actually, wait a minute, let me do this, because for me, personally, it felt like the culmination of everything that I had been doing, the direction my life had been going to that point. So it's something that felt right to me to do, but um, yes, I mean, people practice Hinduism, uh, sometimes calling it that, sometimes not, um, and I think it, it really depends on each person's circumstances. Mm-hmm. But for me, it made sense, because I... I, I I didn't want to feel rootless. You know, that's the other uh, issue that sometimes happens when we're drawing upon many traditions and being eclectic, as, as I've always been. Uh, one can sometimes begin to wonder, well, but but what am I? You know, uh, where right. do I stand? And and uh, I, for me, uh, it made sense to uh, identify and affiliate with the tradition. Mm-hmm. Interesting, Jeff. Uh, as long as we we brought up the subject, um, as you know, it's it's an ongoing. Uh, mystery and uh, uh, source of debate uh, and certainly a lot of conversations around the use of the term Hindu and um, you know people like me who have chronicled the the spread of teachings uh, formulated in what we call Hinduism uh, the teachings uh, from Vedanta and yoga especially um, there are countless numbers of people who um, whose spiritual lives, uh, if they had to be labeled, would, are more Hindu than anything else. They're mm-hmm. practicing yoga. They're learning to meditate in different ways. They they draw from the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras or whatever when they study, um, and yet do not call themselves Hindu. Right. Um, uh, and this, you could say there's two of us on this phone call <laughs> right. in that category. Maybe, maybe three. Right. Yeah. And, and, so, and you do, and you made, and you've made scholarly arguments for, uh, why that it would be an appropriate choice. Um, can right. you, can you, uh, tell us your take on why people don't self-identify as Hindu, even though, uh, they they draw from the tradition and are rooted in the tradition in many ways. In some cases, far more than people born into the tradition. What sure, is sure. what is the resistance? Well, I think there's several reasons for this, and some of them I'm very sympathetic to. Uh, some of them I'm a little less so. Uh, in terms of what I would call the really the really compelling reasons that I see for people who choose not to make that label. Uh, the first one, of course, I think first and foremost, is that one of the core teachings of most forms of Hindu spirituality is that the whole purpose of all of this is not to identify with a label or to connect with uh, an institution. Um, you know, it, it's about attaining realization. And, you know, realization is something uh, we're talking about uh, approaching the infinite, which can't be bound by name or form. And I think very often the people, uh, a lot of Westerners especially, who are drawn to Hindu thought and practice, that's precisely what's appealing. And they're breaking away from Mm -hmm. the limiting bond of religious fundamentalism and uh, churches which say, you know, our way or the highway, and you have to affiliate with us. And here's this beautiful tradition, this, you know, saying, you know, just practice the path and, and, uh, you know, uh, live the way of life and and achieve the goal and, and... not really imposing that kind of limitation on people. So I think people see labels as limiting, and uh, and I think that's certainly legitimate. I think that uh, we can cling too tightly to labels, and uh, 
even if you're Hindu or Buddhist or belong to any tradition which teaches that we should go beyond labels, there's still people who cling to those labels and uh, uh, sometimes with very destructive results. So I think that the, often the very thing that draws one to what we might call a Hindu practice is aversion to labels. So mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of it, mm-hmm. not wanting to feel confined by that. Right. Um, so that's what I would call the what I see as the positive side of it. It's, it. There's a sort of liberatory impulse. At the same time, I think something that people who were born Hindu often feel very acutely is uh, that they might, there, sometimes there seems to be a sense that people don't want to use that word Hindu or use that label because of some kind of aversion on some level to India or Indian culture. Like we want to extract the things that we like from it, but the culture itself is viewed very negatively because there are also a lot of negative, I mean, for all of the wonderful things that people are drawn to in Hinduism in, in the Western world, there are also a lot of negative stereotypes. People think about, uh, well, there's that famous expression, caste, cows, and curry, right? You know, what, what is uh, sort of exotic and ancient and uh, seen as primitive? You know, we have all these negative stereotypes. So I think sometimes... Uh, we might find the need to kind of interrogate this aversion to uh, to labels because some of it may come from a genuine spiritual source, but then other times, especially if you follow the debates in the yoga world, um, there's sometimes a big gap between the Western practitioners and the Indian practitioners, and it precisely seems to stem in large part from a desire of some of the Westerners, not all, um, maybe not even a majority, but some to want to kind of keep the whole Indian cultural matrix at arm's, uh, arm's length. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that aspect is there too, which I find troubling. And right. one can label it in all kinds of ways. Is it unconscious racism? Is it you know what is it? And uh, having really immersed myself in Indian culture and you know lived in India and so on, uh, I just I don't feel that aversion. And so I think, okay, yeah, fine, I'm Hindu. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that uh, at the same time, I don't I don't think that means that everyone who doesn't want to call themselves Hindu is necessarily a racist. But I just think we need to be reflective about these choices that we make. Um, you know, why, why or why not? Yeah. I, let me, if I can follow up, Dennis, um, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of people in the yoga world, dedicated yogis, dedicated meditators, people who um, are devoted to a guru, um, they don't. They don't. They not only don't have an aversion to Indian culture. They love Indian culture and often romanticize it and are shocked right. when they actually go to <laughs> India and, and, um, and yet still don't you know, think of themselves as Hindu. And they're probably in that first category of people who right. just don't want a religious label at all. Right. And there's, there's a third piece of this as well, too, which I didn't mention, which is uh, the tradition itself is so internally diverse that very often, and, and this predates the Western encounter with India, uh, Hindus will identify not so much as Hindus, but as devotees of their particular guru, their particular right. sampradaya. So people will identify primarily as Vaishnav or as Shaiva or as a devotee of some specific guru. And that is their spiritual identity. And Hindu is more kind of an abstraction that is not that they don't see as so relevant to their right. practice. Right. I think that's the third element right. of this yeah. as well. Je- yeah. Jeffrey... You're also affiliated with the Vedanta Society of Ramakrishna. Yes. Now, um, yes. along the lines uh, that Phil brought up, 
Uh, does one necessarily have to be a Hindu to be uh, a, a part of that uh, of the Vedanta Society, uh, or is it something that? A, a, a not, and for for you, was it uh, something uh, that you did for the spiritual practices associated with it, or is it some branch of Hinduism? I see what you mean. Well, uh, in terms of the first aspect, I mean, no, there's no sort of test or requirement uh, uh, that, you know, is there for someone to be part of the Ramakrishna tradition. You know, you don't have to be Hindu or call yourself Hindu. Uh, there's a, a big debate within our tradition right now about are we Hindu or are we not. And uh, there's a, a magazine called American Vedantist, which uh, a lot of its articles are dedicated to this question. And uh, the the understanding, I think, of many people in the Vedanta tradition, especially the, the Western devotees, but also some of the Indian devotees, is that uh, this label Hindu applies to people from India, people who grew up in the tradition, but that Vedanta is a universal philosophy, so mm -hmm. one can follow Vedanta, adhere to Vedanta, and um, at the same time still identify with whatever tradition they grew up in. So there are people who call themselves Christian Vedantists, Jewish Vedantists, Buddhist Vedantists, even secular Vedantists. And that they, because Vedanta itself teaches, it, at least certainly in the tradition of Sri Ramakrishna, teaches that there are many paths to truth. So there's no requirement that one uproot from or detach from one's um, original tradition uh, if, if one still feels rooted in it. Now, the other side of the debate, which I think I'm a little more, uh, is a little closer to my own view, is to say that's all fine, but in fact, if you look sort of from a scholarly perspective or try to distance yourself and just look at what do people believe, what do people do, uh, it, it looks, I mean, it's like if, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, talks <laughs> like a duck right. kind of thing, uh, mm -hmm. it, it seems very Hindu, you know, and uh, uh, I think it's hard to describe Vedanta to someone who's not familiar with it without using the word Hindu. Um, right, right. And uh, the, the funniest uh, exchange I had about this once was a very dear friend of mine on the other side of this debate who was insisting very strongly that, you know, she's not Hindu, she, she follows Vedanta, it's a universal philosophy, but she's not Hindu, she's not Hindu. And then uh, she ended this rather lengthy email by saying, okay, I have to close now, it's time for me to go and do puja. <laughs> so... <laughs> and we we should add we should add that yeah. that person in question was a Vedanta uh, monastic, not just an ordinary practitioner. That's right. Very, very uh -huh. serious, very hard. He was living in the convent, right? And a very dear friend of mine. And and uh, you know, but uh, I, I think a lot of this has to do with how we use words and why. Right. And uh, it, I think the factor for me is being in a culture and in a country and in a part of the United States, really, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania that is overwhelmingly not Hindu and not familiar with Hinduism, uh, Hindu is a word that at least has some meaning in people's minds. So I could say to someone, oh, you know, a frequently asked question in the community where I live is, what church do you go to? And, uh, you know, or what, what's your religious belief? And I could say, well, I follow the Vedanta tradition of Sri Ramakrishna, and I would get a blank stare. You know, but if I say I'm Hindu, well, I, I still sometimes get a weird look, but at least they have an idea of what it means. Mm. You know, so, so a lot of this, I think, has to do with communication as well. You know, yeah. um, and, and another friend of mine, also a monastic in the Vedanta tradition, says, well, we're not Muslims, we're not Christians, we're not Buddhists. You know, we're, you know, if, you have to, if you have to pick a label, 
And, of course, that could be the debate. Do you have to? But if you have to pick a label, I think Hindu fits us better than anything. Yeah, yeah. And I know a lot of yogis, and myself included, that, you know, it comes down to that. If you're forced to choose a label, uh, but right. most people would prefer to, you know, not choose a label. Right. Um, switching gears for a minute, Jeffrey, um, uh, one of your areas of scholarly interest is uh, Jainism. Yeah. Uh, or is it Jainism? I always... Well, you can pronounce it either way. Okay. Uh, the, the original original Sanskrit word is Jaina, but then in India that becomes either Jain or Jain, okay. depending on which part of India you're in. Okay. So um, that is a scholarly interest of yours. You wrote uh, a serious uh, scholarly book about Jainism. Um, can you uh, first tell us, you know, what drew your interest to that and explain it to people, uh, explain to people what Jainism is. Uh, you know, we're not that familiar with it, and the image is of ex- extreme asceticism and people, you know, who... Um, renunciates who who walk around with face masks so they don't uh, uh, harm a living creature and so forth. But, you know, there's a lot more to it. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's a radical teaching of nonviolence, ahimsa. And as you said, Phil, the the most widespread image, uh, for those who are familiar with Jainism, is uh, the ascetics, the monks and nuns who go to very great care and they pretty much spend most of their waking time trying to avoid harming even the smallest life form. Now, that's only the ascetic community. There is a Jain lay community, a Jain householder community, and they also live a fairly strict life, uh, very strict vegetarians, and uh, a growing number of Jains in America are vegans as well, uh, though veganism is not traditionally part of, of Jainism. But uh, there's a very strict adherence to a diet that is as nonviolent as possible. But the laity are not expected to go to the extremes of the monks uh, and the nuns because it would basically make life impossible, working, having a family, you know, doing all the things that householders need to do. So you have that level of, of very intense practice that the ascetics follow. And uh, in terms of their uh, lay practice, uh, Jainism from the outside looks very much like uh, a fairly strict form of Hinduism. I'm not saying that it is. But that's how it appears. Uh, many of the rituals are very similar to Hindu rituals. Jains perform arti. Jains have temples. Uh, there's some Jains that don't use temples or images, but uh, that's one particular subgroup. But the majority of Jains use temples and, and have images. And even some of the Hindu deities are honored by Jains as well. Saraswati, the goddess of wisdom, Lakshmi, goddess of prosperity, Ganesha. Uh, you see all of these uh, in Jain homes and Jain temples. But it's a distinct tradition that doesn't root itself in the Vedas. It roots itself in the teaching of enlightened beings called jinnas. And the last one that existed in our, in our part of the universe was Mahavira. Uh, his name means the great hero. And he was roughly a contemporary of the Buddha, and in fact came from the same region of India that the Buddha came from, sort of the northeastern area. And uh, in, according to both the Buddhist and Jain scriptures, these two... Uh, great figures were aware of one another, though we don't have any record of them ever having met. Hmm. Uh, but their their followers interacted with one another, and they seemed to have respected one another, though they had different paths. The, the Jain path is very, very rigorous, uh, very focused on asceticism, as you said. My interest in Jainism is twofold. Uh, firstly, they were a huge influence on Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, the part of India that Gandhi came from is a very 
um, very heavily Jain. I mean, Jains are a tiny minority in India, but many of them are clustered in the uh, northwestern states like Gujarat and Rajasthan. And so Gandhi grew up with a lot of Jain influence. And uh, in fact, it's said that his guru, the, the, the spiritual figure who had the most influence on him, was a Jain layman uh, named uh, Rajchandra Mehta, uh, also called Rajchandra Mehta. And he was, a, he was a lay person. He was a diamond merchant, in fact, but very ascetic in his lifestyle and very immersed in the teachings. And he had a big impact on Gandhi's views on morality, on nonviolence, on truth-telling. So these are heavy influences on Gandhi. The other thing that I find very interesting on Jainism is sort of a technical aspect, but they have a teaching of uh, multiple perspectives and the inherent complexity of the universe which is used to justify kind of a pluralistic attitude toward other religions, other philosophies. Uh, the Jains say that rather than tell someone they're wrong, you find the, the, the kernel of truth or insight in their perspective, and you affirm that, and you say, well, they're, they're partly right and partly wrong, right, if you disagree with them. And, uh, this is seen by many contemporary Jains as a form of nonviolent speech, so that even in the intellectual realm where philosophers are trying to figure out what's true and what's false, that you don't completely discount the point of view. And I found that very interesting because a big, a big interest of, of mine is also interfaith dialogue and making the world a better place by getting us all to talk together and understand one another. And I find this Jane approach is very helpful in that regard. And it's been useful to me both in my personal life and in my scholarship to really try to find the insight in every point of view and, and draw that out rather than, uh, you know, be be dogmatic. This is the opposite of dogmatism. Right. We, need, we need some uh, uh, leaders of, of, of Jainism uh, conducting the next uh, presidential debates. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps they'd be a little bit more productive. <laughs> I have a question that for be, you. That would be wonderful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, I have a question. Uh, you, you, you have a book coming out, Indian Philosophy and Introduction. Um, certainly yes. books have been written about Indian philosophy. Will this have a, uh, any new angle and uh, is your affiliation with the, the Vedanta Society, uh, Ramakrishna, will that inter influence uh, this book? Oh, those are very good questions. Uh, the book is, I'm hoping it will come out very shortly, uh, but I'm still working on it. But um, I think what's really distinctive about this book, as you say, there are many books on Indian philosophy, many very good books on Indian philosophy, but overwhelmingly they tend to focus on the ancient and classical texts and traditions and I think it creates the false impression that these traditions are dead, uh, a thing of the past, only of historical value. And I'm of the view that they have very contemporary relevance and uh, can be connected with a variety of current issues in philosophy and in society more widely. And uh, so I'm going to be connecting these philosophies with those contemporary issues. And I'm also going to be examining Indian philosophy right up to the present time. So... It's not going to cut off about 1,000 A.D. or so. It's going to go right up into the 20th and 21st centuries uh, with figures like Swami Vivekananda, mm -hmm. Sri Aurobindo, uh, Ramana Maharshi, uh, Sarvapali Radhakrishnan, and a variety of other more, I guess you could say, academic Indian philosophers who are you know, more known in, in the uh, field of philosophy but still you know, very relevant. And so I want to I wanna show that this is a, a living and a still... 
relatable uh, tradition. So that's the angle. In terms of my own affiliation, uh, that's not going to be a prominent theme of the book, uh, but I, it certainly informs it because uh, one of the reasons I believe these traditions are still so relevant is because I'm I'm practicing one and uh, I can see the connections. And uh, so I think uh, so. It, it the book is not about my personal experience, but it certainly is a product of it because of that. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Jeffrey, um, as you know, and, and we've, we've, you and I have talked about this, and um, there's a lot of controversy around how Hinduism is uh, studied and taught in academia, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of Hindus are, are very upset that it, it's misrepresented. On the other hand, there are people like you and uh, who who are not only uh, scholarly uh, students of the tradition, but practitioners. Um, can you explain uh, your perspective on on this uh, sort of some some of the controversy gets rather heated sometimes, yeah. as you know. Yes. Right. This is this is our sort of Hindu version of the culture wars, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate, uh, and precisely because, as you said, it gets so heated. And, uh, you know, referring back to Jain philosophy for a moment, uh, I, I wish more people on both sides of these issues would adhere to that, because uh, when Hindus raise concerns about how the tradition is represented, very often they're immediately and reflexively dismissed as fundamentalist, nationalist, and so on. And that that gets people who are often giving very thoughtful, very reasoned and sincere critiques. It lumps them in with, you know, religious riots and, you know, all kinds of things that, that you know, are... It, it's very unfair. I mean, it would be equivalent to saying that if you voice a criticism of a policy of President Obama that, well, you must be a supporter of Donald Trump. You know, there, there's a lot of space between <laughs> Obama and Donald Trump, and, and I think it's the same way with a lot of these debates. Uh, similarly, uh, just as, as many of the Hindu objections get, uh, I think, dismissed too easily, I also think that uh, there's a tendency on the Hindu side to be immediately suspicious of Western scholars, often unfairly, because as you say, quite a few of us are practitioners, and we're trying to advance what we see as a, as a meaningful and authentic and thoughtful presentation of the tradition. And I've had a number of uh, interactions, mostly online, uh, where just because of my name, I have to, you know, give a, a version of my whole life story so that someone will just listen to me, you know, and that's, that's unproductive. It, it's, it's really created this rift where mm-hmm. uh, people are immediately suspicious uh, of, of anyone, uh, and, and those of us who are both scholars and practitioners feel caught in the middle because, I mean, um, and I will often be asked questions, you know, how do you navigate uh, your commitment to the academy and your commitment to Hinduism, is there a conflict? Well, there's no conflict in my mind because they both amount to a commitment to the truth. Where if you're committed to the truth and you want to you want to understand reality and explain it and, and uh, present a perspective well and logically and using evidence, um, that, uh, I mean, that should lead you to the same place, whether you're calling yourself a spiritual practitioner or whether you're calling yourself an academic scholar. The methods are different, but uh, there's certain core principles of 
being faithful to your experience, being faithful to, you know, what your senses reveal to you, and uh, using logic and reason. So um, I, I think it's very unfortunate that it's become very politicized. Uh, my hope, though, is that it will lead to uh, um, better understanding on both sides. And there are dialogues that are productive that are happening as well. It's not just all you know, shouting back and forth. My, my hunch, if I can follow up just quickly, is um, one of the things that's unusual about this is um, I would guess that if someone were uh, a practicing Christian or Jew and also teaching Christianity or Judaism uh, in an academic setting, uh, no one would think there might be a conflict. Right, right, exactly. The most natural thing in the world, right. And it, it seems only to be with this particular tradition that there's this bias that if, if you're a practitioner, you must be uh, not a good scholar because you're, you know, you're, you have a political axe to grind or, you know, whatever the allegation is. And uh, I just, I find that very problematic. It, first of all, it, it's not a really, it's not a very scholarly argument because if you think about postmodern thought, if you look at the insights that have been gained through philosophy and anthropology over the last hundred years or so, uh, no one is perfectly objective. And on some level, everyone has an axe to grind. And um, what I say in my first book, when I, when I wrote Division for Hinduism, I say, I think rather than claim to be objective, it's better to just be upfront about your point of view. I'm approaching this as a practitioner of this, as a, you know, these are my assumptions. And then the person who's reading your work or listening to you can say, okay, he, he's operating from within that thought world, so I can process his words accordingly. Whereas if I claim to be objective, I can actually be uh, biased in all kinds of ways, but I'm covering that up, I'm obscuring right. it. Right. But everyone says, oh, he's an objective scholar, so that must be true. Well, yeah. then you have to you know, do what we scholars call the hermeneutics of suspicion and dig for those, uh, those hidden assumptions. It's better just don't, don't hide them. Uh, and that's one thing I, I think in some ways Christian theologians are a model for us because they're upfront about, you know, mm-hmm. where they stand and what they <clears throat> do. Yeah, Jeffrey, what, what, what I was thinking when you said that sometimes when you mentioned your name, uh, you have to explain why you're a Hindu, uh, which seems like something right. you shouldn't have to do. And, and that's because uh, maybe right. because Christianity is a, a religion that encourages people to go out and proselytize and convert people all over the world, whereas Hinduism is not really, as I understand it, uh, a, a religion where people actively go out and proselytize and try to convert people. Uh, uh, right. And so it's more associated with a particular geographic region, and therefore somebody from mm-hmm. the West who says they're Hindu, then people are, are surprised by that, and they shouldn't be. But I, I think that will change as more and more... Uh, uh, Hindus uh, begin and are living in the West, and there's uh, you know certainly a, a lot more folk like yourself uh, who don't have Indian names but are, are practicing Hindus. That's right. Yeah, uh, I think so too. I think that's correct. I I wanted to ask one other question, uh, one final question for me, and then turn it over to to Phil. Uh, it, 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 in your daily life, in addition, you've done a lot of scholarly work. And, and uh, uh, in the area of uh, uh, Hindu uh, uh, tradition in terms of the, the, uh, um, the philo- Hindu philosophy. Uh, but on a daily basis, do you practice uh, certain technologies of spiritual growth that uh, you know, are associated maybe with our Ramakrishna order? Is there a, a lot of mm-hmm. practice 
in, in addition to the scholarly work that you uh, involve yourself in? Yes, definitely. And I think without the practice, the scholarly work would sort of come unmoored and wouldn't make as much sense. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I both are, uh, um, we've taken diksha, that is, we've taken initiation into the uh, Ramakrishna tradition. And one of the things that happens when you take diksha, and I think this is very similar to Phil's tradition, uh, the, uh, you receive a mantra that is your personal mantra, and you meditate on that. We meditate twice a day, uh, morning and evening. It's the first thing we do when we get up and mm-hmm. something we do sometime in the evening, but twice every single day. Uh, we don't miss it for anything. Uh, it's the most important thing we do every day. Uh, we are also affiliated to our local Hindu temple. In fact, I'm currently on the board of trustees, uh, so we serve the community in that way. And I also find my professional life becoming a form of service to the community because I'm informing students, I'm informing people who mostly don't know much anything about Hinduism or, or even other Asian traditions as well. Uh, they're not aware of these things. So I'm using my professional life as a vehicle for sharing knowledge with people. So I see my my uh, day-to-day work at my college where I teach as part of my seva, part of my service. And then, of course, we celebrate all the big holidays. My wife is Bengali, and so uh, Saraswati Puja is very big, and we're going to a community celebration on Saturday for that. Um, we go to Durga Puja every year, very faithfully. There's a big Bengali temple uh, in Maryland that we uh, that we attend. So we go to the temple, we participate in the pujas, and when there are things like cultural programs and so on, we get involved. Sometimes my wife is the MC, sometimes I'm the MC. Uh, sometimes I give a little bit of a scholarly explanation of something uh, if the community wants that. And so it, it, it's woven into every aspect of our lives, really. Uh, Jeffrey, before we go, I want to first uh, call attention to one of your books, The Historical Dictionary of Hinduism, which um, I keep around. And, you know, it's uh, as as encyclopedias go, as these things go, it's it's fairly short. It's it's only 300 and some odd pages. And I I find it a a very useful reference book when, uh, especially when I'm confronted with a a, a Sanskrit term or a, a common Hindu term that I, I don't quite know the, the, the meaning of. Um, and, and I just want to uh, commend you for that and call the listeners' attention to that as a, as a good reference source. And I also want to, and I want to ask you about uh, Sutra Journal, which yeah. has an affiliation with our, our podcast. And maybe you can explain uh, to the listeners what the... Uh, what the purpose of Sutra Journal is and and what its uh, mission is. Uh, well, uh, I'm very happy to be part of Sutra Journal. Uh, if um, if we can connect it back with the conversation, uh, the questions earlier about the uh, academic uh, and uh, you know debates between uh, academic scholars and practitioners of Hinduism, uh, I see Sutra Journal as exemplifying what I would call a, a third space, which is not uh, the kind of uh, academic approach that is very sterile and objectifying and 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 uh, objectivizing and uh, really the, the kind that uh, is quite offensive to many Hindu practitioners, but it's also solidly grounded in scholarship. And we have really top scholars who've contributed articles. We're speaking with more that we're hoping to contribute, but that that it's popularizing what is 
true and good and beautiful in in these traditions, and not only Hinduism. That uh, you know, we're looking really very broadly, you know, dharmically. We've had articles on Buddhism, for example. I'm hoping to do something on Jainism in the not too distant future, and uh, and just you know, spirituality more broadly. But that that it really, I think, addresses a need for material that is accessible to to someone who's not a trained scholar. So you know, a, a lay person who's just cruising on the internet and wants to find something uh, of substance, but that does have, you know, substance that, that, that is serious, that is uh, grounded in uh, solid, both academic knowledge and in practice. And, of course, we have uh, articles that are about practice as well and, and from the point of view of people who are engaged in these spiritual technologies. And so uh, I, I'm really excited about it. And it just emerged very fortuitously. A group of people met uh, through Facebook, more or less, and uh, it was just the right mixture of backgrounds and talents to create uh, something that would have the kind of substance we're talking about, but that would also be accessible and also very beautiful. That's the other thing I, I love about Sutra Journal. Everyone that I've shown uh, this website uh, to, uh, Sutra Journal, the first word everyone says is, wow, uh, because the artwork is just stunning, and uh, we've managed to compile just amazing uh, photographs of uh, temple art in India, uh, religious art, um, natural photography, just uh, amazing things. Uh, you get to see how visually beautiful these traditions are. Right. So uh, I, I think Sutra Journal is a wonderful platform, and as an author, you know, when I write academic books, you know, I'm very grateful that you use my historical, journal, uh, historical uh, dictionary of Hinduism. Uh, but I, uh, you know, sometimes wonder how many people are actually reading some of the more technical, scholarly things I, I you know, put out. Um, but uh, Sutra Journal, you know, I, I go and check, and you know, after uh, a day or two, oh look, there are 700 likes on Facebook for something right. I've written on Indian philosophy. So right. uh, it's reaching a wider audience, and that's what authors want. We want people to read our stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> Sutra Journal is a great platform for that. But and and you can uh, listeners can. Look at Sutra Journal by going to sutrajournal.com and also uh, on our podcast, spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, there's a link to uh, Sutra Journal on uh, the, uh, the cover page. So absolutely check it out. And, and it's true, it's beautifully done. Uh, the artwork and is, is fantastic and the text is, is very significant. Uh, I, I think people will enjoy it. Jeffrey, uh, thank you so very much for taking the time uh, to join us today. And uh, Phil, any final questions or comments? No, I would turn it over to Jeffrey to if, if there's any final words he would have for our listeners or just to say uh, thank you for coming on. And well, I, I'm very grateful uh, that you've uh, let me come and speak in this forum. And uh, I would, yes, I, and just thinking of the questions that you asked me, I would simply encourage the listeners, and they probably don't even need encouragement, but just to keep exploring and looking in greater depth at these traditions and, you know, one doesn't have to call oneself anything in particular, but I do think we need to honor and respect the sources of where all of this wonderful knowledge and these wonderful practices come from, and that really have the capacity to change the world for the better. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you.